It's another Two Tout Tuesday. I'll talk with Ron Chandler, the founder of Baseball HQ and BabsBaseball.com, and Rob Silver, a past overall champion of the NFBC and a longtime fantasy analyst. Ron and Rob, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 16th. It's show number five of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Two Tout Tuesday edition for you with two great guests. We'll have a feature interview with Ron Chandler discussing his forthcoming fantasy baseball memoir, Zigging and Zagging Through Drafts, Fishing with Babs, His Boons and Banes, and much more. And then our second feature interview, we'll have Rob Silver discussing the false promise of Adalberto Mondesi, the implications of a deflated baseball, his boons and banes, and more. It's another big Two Tout Tuesday edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Two Tout Tuesday edition, our first feature expert interview with Ron Chandler, the founder of Baseball HQ and BabsBaseball.com. Ron, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Yeah, Patrick's probably been about a year, but uh, it's always a pleasure to, to sit here and talk with you for a little while, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, very much. Uh, are you doing any preseason drafts this year? Uh, really, the only draft I've had so far is um, the XFL draft that we normally do during first pitch Arizona each fall. I've, I think I've made a, a deliberate decision to hold off um, on drafts until we knew what, the, knew what the rules were that we were playing by this year. I was afraid that you know, I'd go into a draft with one set of expectations like, uh, I don't know, like the universal DH and then get beaten by someone who uh, correctly guessed that I shouldn't have gotten an extra buck on Dominic Smith. So it's, um, I think there were so many uncertainties in this game. I wanted to wait for as long as I could. Um, so I'm probably just going to end up with uh, the XFL, Labor Tout Wars, my local league, uh, probably probably hop on a few best ball contests also. Where's your local league? Uh Florida. Um, uh, you know, I've been living here in Florida now full time for about five, six years and, uh, slowly been, uh, introducing my neighbors to, uh, to fantasy baseball. So I'm, I'm sort of kind of a ringer, but, um, I always choose a, a fantasy format where, which, where the playing field is really level. So, um, I don't play head to head. So all these leagues that my local leagues are head to head leagues. So I feel like, uh, I'm, I'm more, uh, on a competitive level with my friends here. And it seems to work. I haven't won yet, so it's been five years and I haven't won. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, I was going to say it's a, a situation like, hi, I'm Gary Kasparov. Uh, I'm your new neighbor. I'll teach you how to play chess. Yeah. <laughs> but but, uh, but maybe not so much if you're not actually winning, because I suspect Kasparov would be doing a lot of winning. Uh, none, even though you're not playing that much, Ron, I'm sure you've been following the mock drafts and the commentaries and what have you in various sites while you're preparing your own work. Uh, and one of the things I've been asking uh, a lot of the people who've been on the show so far this season is if, is if they've seen or experienced any trends in 2021 drafting that appear to them to be a bit unusual. And pretty much everybody is saying the increased focus on 
pitching in the early rounds, which not that long ago was pretty much an anathema. People thought pitchers were way too risky. And now you're getting situations where Garrett Cole or, or Jacob deGrom is being taken first or second overall. There's, you know, half of the pitchers in the first two rounds are starting pitchers. Uh, what do you think of that, and how would you zag to that zig if you were if you were so inclined? Yeah, well, I, I've seen that too, obviously. And um, one of the things that uh, has come up repeatedly is is taking a few pitches in the first few rounds. But I think a lot of it comes down to that we're we're putting, I think, excess weight on the performances from last year's short season, and there were some incredible pitching performances. I you know I, I look at guys like like Shane Bieber, like Trevor Bauer. Um, I think they're being overdrafted this year uh, based on basically like a dozen starts last year. But we have we, we have a long history of pitchers who have amazing starts and then fade over a full six months. And I'm absolutely certain that guys like Bieber and Bauer would have eventually faded if they had to pay, play for a full season and wouldn't be as highly rated this year. You know, I even see a guy like, like Devin Williams going in, the, and I think he's going in the 12th round. Incredible season last year, but 27 innings. And you know, I look back at his history, and in 2019, he had a whip of 164. So I, th- I think that is, is contributing to this, this, this uh, rush to grab the top pitchers. Now, that's not to say it's, it's a bad strategy because you, you, you have to kind of sort of follow the market. But I think, I think if we, there is any way to zag when everybody else is zigging is I think you have to um, – to ignore 2020 stats of, of the players who are clear outliers. And that's both the good outliers and the bad outliers and, and give greater weight to their earlier history. So, you know, Shane Bieber's not as good as we think he is. Um, Marcelo Suna is not going to hit on a 45 home run pace. And by the same token, you take guys like, you know, JD Martinez and Ketel Marte, they're not as bad as what they showed in 2020. And, and that's, I think, where your biggest profit opportunity is going to lie. You mentioned Devin Williams in his 27 innings. I actually saw something not long ago where an analyst was recommending that Devin Williams should be drafted even higher because, and this is paraphrasing what he said was, but, you know, if he's got 54 strikeouts or whatever it was in 27 innings, if you prorate that out to 80 innings, well, gosh, he's going to be, well, yeah, you know, and that's like if you prorate the last winning lottery ticket you had to all the rest of them, you'd be, you know, you'd be uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, but that's not how it works. No, and I mean, he was also pitching in 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 uh, when we were in division geographic divisional play last year. He was in that 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 section of the schedule with all the central league division uh, central league teams that um, were among the the worst offensively. So, you know, a lot of these top pitchers last year were pitching against inferior offenses, which further inflated their their statistics. I mean, Bieber and Bauer both. So. Um, Again, I think you need to find more of a perspective as to where to place that 60-game season last year and not allow it to so influence your thinking for this year's drafts. Well, of course, Ron, you were the founder and longtime uh, manager, owner of BaseballHQ.com. You've since moved on and started a, a new site called Babs Baseball, and we'll talk a little bit about that right now. Uh, you have an interesting document on this year's site. It's called your 2021 Disclosure Statement, and this is really interesting. Maybe start by briefly explaining where that idea came from. 
it was a local writer here in Florida. Um, and every year in the paper, she, um, uh, let me just, uh, she has a quote here. She says, I have regular readers and new readers, but I can't assume that everyone knows where I stand on the issues. So someone reading me for the first time might pass judgment on my work without knowing how I formed my opinions over time. And I, I, I so agree with that. You know, people read the stuff that I write and they just assume that either I am, uh, my opinions are mainstream or, uh, they, they're not, they don't recognize my inherent biases that I've, I've formed over the last, uh, you know, 35 years writing in this industry. So every year I, I publish this document that just gives my readers a sense of who I am, where I'm coming from, and uh, hopefully that informs their opinions about my writing. Yeah, it seems like such an obvious sort of thing to do. Not so much for fantasy writers, although I think it would be helpful, but for for writers in newspapers and on media, maybe once a year, or every six months or so, they ought to be obliged or, or they ought to just take it upon themselves to say, here's who I am and here's how I got to, to think the way that I think. I think it would be very helpful. And I think it might actually tend to cool down the emotions of people who who read the work and they don't understand that this is coming from a particular point of view and they get all bent out of shape. So uh, in your uh, disclosure statement, you said, in the 1994 forecaster, you had proclaimed that numbers are everything, and that mantra, you said, has been replaced with Im- uh, embrace imprecision. Why did you make that step? Or how did you make that step? Yeah, well, it was kind of an evolution over time. You know, back in the uh, early 1990s, um, my, my perspective was, you know, we play this game with numbers, so everything we do has to feed into the numbers that we play the game with. <clears throat> And um, I was so uh, involved in, in statistical work back then that, uh, I mean, I was, my profession before I, I got into baseball writing was uh, started out as a, a sales forecasting analyst. And so very, very in tune to the numbers. But as, uh, you know, over time, I, I came to realize that uh, human beings are not statistical machines. You know, they, there is a lot of variability around the numbers that they produce and in fact, uh, the forecasting process itself is highly flawed. Um, just looking at the results from one year to the next, we, we, we know our accuracy rate is, is pretty damn horrible. So um, I came to realize that my mantra, numbers are everything, really is, 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 is not true at all. And uh, over time, things that I've done on, on Baseball HQ, like uh, the Mayberry Method and you know, the Broad Assessment Balance Sheet, BABS, is, is all involved with embracing the imprecision of the process. And, and that's where I come from now. You also said that uh, every method currently in use for in-season free agent acquisition is flawed. What in general is wrong with all of these FAB and waivers and all of these systems? Well, you know, we, we, we spend an incredible amount of time preseason to figure out uh, exactly what each player is worth. But then we go into uh, trying to get free agents during the season, and we're just tossing out random fab numbers, not knowing uh, what the rest of the market is thinking of those players. You know, those are blind bidding processes. Um, even going reverse order of the standings, you know, gives extra added weight to people who are doing poorly. And maybe that uh, feeds parity in, in a league, but it's not really fair to those people who've done their homework and have teams higher in the standings. So I, there are a lot of there are a lot of ways that we're doing it now that I think are, are not the right way. And we have 
what I believe is the optimal way to do free agent bidding. And there are very few sites that, that do that now. And that's just the, the eBay model that uh, I think Fantrax uses. Um, I don't know if anybody else uses that, but to allow people to have more of an open bidding process, um, I think is, is really the best way to acquire free agents during the season. And I'm just really surprised that it's taken so long for, for any sites to adopt it and why we went so long without having it. One of the criticisms of eBay as a way to buy and sell things, Ron, as you probably know, is this idea of sniping where somebody who doesn't have a job or is, is free to sit around at 1 a.m. or whenever the auction closes waits till you know, two seconds before the auction closes and bids the extra dollar and gets the you know, diamond teen tchotchke of uh, you know, a little girl with her puppy or whatever. What would be uh, the outcome if we had that s- situation in uh, – in fantasy baseball that whoever is willing to stay up till the last second and uh, could snipe these good players and then everybody gets bent out of shape. Well, sure. I mean, there is always that, but I think if you place a bid of what you think an accurate value is for that player and you are seeing during the course of the bidding, what others, what others are placing value that I think it's still a better system than what we have. And, um, you know, as, as far as sniping is concerned, uh, you know, it, 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 when it comes to fab, you have a limited budget, unlike uh, in eBay, where you can bid to the moon and, and still always bid $1 more. So th- if that guy's going to snipe, he's just going to have, a, you know, a high a high cost free agent from a limited budget that he's starting from. So there is it's not like there's no downside from sniping. Yeah. And the other thing I thought of when I was uh, thinking about this issue myself was that uh, uh, there's still the winner's curse, and anybody who plays pays the extra dollar right at the end is increasing the risk that he's making a bad decision. So uh, in in any kind of auction, really, the disciplined bidder will say, I know what I think this asset is worth, and I know what I'm willing to pay for it, and if I bid that amount and I'm outbid, I'm not going to chase it, absent any other contextual issues. You know, i got to have a first baseman or something like that, which shouldn't make you just chase and chase and chase. It should be reflected in what you think the value to you is at the time that you're placing the bid. Well, sure. Yeah. No, it's, again, it's, it's, it's not as a, a wild, wild west type of situation in eBay where any, you know, anybody who has more money can, can get that commodity. But, you know, with, with, with fab, you're working from a budget, a thousand dollars, a hundred dollars, whatever it is. So, um, you know, there is a limit. In this year's introduction to the BAB system, you say that Fantasy Baseball Marketplace is getting smarter and seems to be coming to terms with all the advice we've been doling out over the years. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, always in a perfect world, players with comparable skills should cost about the same in the auction as uh, and be ranked closely together in the ADPs. Um, but historically, there have been some very wide ranges in pricing. You know, I think back... Uh, uh, a few years ago, uh, I think Reese Hoskins and Michael Conforto were rated as having comparable skills, but were about 100 spots apart. You know, I think last year, the year before, Charlie Morton was nearly 100 spots behind Corey Kluber. Last year, Hinjin Ryu was 60 spots behind Zach Greinke, despite essentially having com- comparable skills. And the core of Babs is, is to find and exploit these market inefficiencies. But this year... Um, there aren't that many, uh, especially at the top. You know, ten out of the top eleven rated Babs players are in the ADP top thirteen. I mean, I've never seen that before. Sixteen of the top eighteen rated starting pitchers are going in the first four rounds. 
So uh, the market is getting, they're getting, it's getting better. They're getting it right this year. So uh, uh, I think that's, that's an interesting uh, development. Well, maybe before we go on for people who are unfamiliar with the BAB system, give us the, the big uh, high level picture. BABs groups players into skills profiles. So uh, rather than looking at an exact projection of somebody hitting uh, 30 home runs, he might be slotted into a a bucket that uh, says he has significant power or moderate power or extreme power. And uh, then that would be matched against his batting average, his, his speed potential, and create these different these profiles. And as it turns out, you know, players are a lot more alike than they are different. And so a lot of players will be grouped into similar profiles. But when you look at their pricing with the ADPs, they're all over the map. Um, so Babs assesses skills that way, but also looks at uh, since it's a, a balance sheet, it also looks at the other side of the ledger, the risk factors. So players are also rated for their injury risk, their experience risk, uh, some other uh, you know, skills risks, some minor uh, risk categories. And so when you're drafting, you can take a look at both a player's underlying skill and the risk that comes associated with it and decide uh, decide how you're going to draft them. I should say, Ron, that I've played the BAB system and it does work. And one of the innovations in it is that instead of totaling up your statistics, how many home runs am I projected to get, how many RBIs and so forth, the system instead adds up these asset values and the risk values and sets targets so that you can be comfortable coming out of auction that you've got the balance that you need in the skills, not necessarily the outcomes, and in the risks, not necessarily any kind of pure negative reductions of of those outcomes. So the the two factors that seem to combine are I'm going to get the skills I need and balance them out at the bottom, and I'm going to avoid the risks I need to avoid or or take as much risk as I'm comfortable accepting and, and have a total for that. Right. And it's it's on the on the risk side, it's a budget. So basically you have a budget of how many risk factors your your roster can uh, can handle and still be competitive. And you have targets on, on the asset side. Um, I, I think a good example of this is you take a player like uh, Giancarlo Stanton, and he's he's ranked now in the ADPs based upon um, a very risky profile. But the fact is, if he's healthy, he could be a first round player and needs to be included within the pool of players that have that underlying skills potential. But when you look at the liability side of the ledger and you see, you know, all those risk factors, that's how you have to weigh yourself whether he belongs on your roster. Is there any thought given, Ron, to the idea that I want to limit my risk with the players that are costing me the most, whether in auction dollars or in round value, so that uh, a Giancarlo Stanton, no matter that that his risk profile is, while it may be similar to somebody who's being picked at ADP 150, the fact is you really aren't as willing to accept that level of risk with a guy you're picking in the second or third round as you are with a guy you're picking at, you know, in the 10th round. Yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, uh, there's discussion going on now on our on our reader forums on that exact topic because uh, people, um, my readers are st- kind of feeling the same way and trying to figure out how to uh, assign uh, values to those risk factors for players later on in the draft. And I think in the next iteration of Babs next year, uh, we'll probably have different um, different point values for assessing risk for players, you know, above a certain 
projected uh, market value and below a certain projected market value. So yes, I mean, somebody you, you draft in the 20th round who has a lot of risk factors may be a very good fit for your roster more than drafting a Giancarlo Stanton. Um, and we need a way to take advantage of it. Yeah, you're, you're completely on target with that. And I was talking uh, last week with Ariel Cohen. You're probably familiar with his work. And, and he said, from his point of view, as he's a, uh, he does insurance. He's, he works for a reinsurance company, and he uh, does statistics for them. And to him, he says risk is a two-way street. It's just another name for variability. And I saw the, the letter at Babs from one of your members saying, in the 20th round, I want risk because it could be upside risk. I, you know, if I'm investing, you know, a 20th or 21st round pick or a, or an end game $1 in an auction, I don't care if this guy doesn't pan out. I want the risk because if he pans out, I'll just go into the free agent pool and replace him. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the, there really is no downside risk in that late in the draft because if he doesn't pan out, you just cut him. You know, it's, it, I mean, it, it's a lot depends upon how you're structuring your roster, but you know, at an extreme level, let's say, um, you might want to roster Ryan Braun in, in, in the 50th round of, a, of a, a, a draft and hold league because maybe he'll change his mind, decide to play this year. And what kind of upside you can get of a player of that caliber just by tucking him away. And that's, that's a huge risk category, but certainly something that a player might be willing to take late in the, late in the draft. Now, you mentioned that the BABS system is starting to more closely follow ADPs so that the uh, risk and the impacts of the gap between skills and ADPs are narrowing in the top rounds. So where is BABS finding those playable bargains that are the core of any kind of winning strategy? Well, you know, thankfully for us, the talent pool is is like a pyramid. You know, there are a few really great players at the top at the the further down you go, the the breadth of, of comparable skills profile spreads out. You know, you know, auction players recognize this immediately. There are only a handful of $40 players, but once you get into the single digits, there are tons of players to pick from. And and that's and that's where we find the real inefficiencies now, I think. You know, six, let me think, uh, six of the top eight skills groupings in Babs right now have just one player. But you go further down and you'll start finding groups with, you know, 10 players, 15 players, even more. Um, I look, I look at a player like, um, let's see, Alec Bohm, who is going at around, let's see, ADP looks like 102. And Bab says there are about 30 other players with comparable skills going all the way down into the 700 ADPs, you know. I like Alec Bohm. He's got a great prospect pedigree. Um, he had a great debut last year and like 150 at-bats. But I look at his baseball HQ projection. It's about 20 homers in the 280 average. And I think, well, that looks pretty similar to Starlin Castro. And he's he's going like 200 spots later. So I think that is that is the kind of the whole underlying uh, concept here is, is finding those guys like Starlin Castro, who maybe is not a perfect comp to Alec Bohm, but if I can get someone who's going to hit 20 home runs and bat 280, 200 spots later, that that's pure profit. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler, a Hall of Famer in fantasy baseball. And Ron, we're talking about your BAB system, and you're nothing if not an inveterate tinkerer. All through your career, you've always been willing to look at new ways of doing things, which is to your credit. And you have a new tweak in the BAB's environment called the FISH list. And you say FISH is not an acronym, but what is the FISH list and how does it work? 
Well, it's interesting. Um, over the winter, I've been thinking that um, I'd like I'd like to have a ranking list that had the players slotted into the rounds where I would be the most comfortable drafting them. Now, the, the ADPs are telling me one thing, and my own rankings are often telling me something else. But I want to know where where should I really be looking for drafting each of these players. So, for instance, um, when the sixth round comes, I want a list of players in my sixth round pool who fall into three general categories. The first is obviously I want players who I believe are sixth rounders and the marketplace also agree are sixth rounders. So that's kind of the optimal uh, group there. So we all think they're sixth rounders. But I also want players who the market sees as maybe a seventh or eighth rounder what I see is better. I see maybe this guy's a fourth or fifth rounder. And I figure if I can get them in the sixth round, I still have a good chance of getting them without overpaying. So I want that guy in my sixth round pool. And finally, I also want to put players who the marketplace may like way more than I do. Now, I won't take someone in the third or fourth round where he's going, but if they drop to me in the sixth round, yeah, I'd be comfortable taking them there. So that leaves me with, with a pool of players in that sixth round. There might be 15 of them. There might be 12 of them. There might be 20. There might be five. But that's my sixth round pool. Um, and I call it the fish list because, you know, as much as all our jobs as analysts start to teach people how to fish, this for me, this list kind of just gives people a bucket of seafood and says, you know, it, it, it's more of a brainless exercise. Maybe that's good. Maybe it's bad. I don't know. But I, but I think it takes something away from the nuance of drafting. So I decided to call it the fish list. When I looked at some examples, uh, I saw um, Houston DH Jordan Alvarez seemed like a, a target based on the fish list. He's currently, we, the ADPs have him at um, 87. Uh, so that's a sixth round player. But his skills, and actually this is kind of the same thing as last year before he got hurt, but um, if you take a look and strip away a lot of the risk factors, his skills are very, very similar to Mike Trout, which, you know, I, last year I was promoting, you can draft Mike Trout in the third round that that was Jordan Alvarez. His underlying skills are, are very, very comparable. I mean, he's, he still has a lot of risk factors. He, um, you know, he's projected for less playing time, uh, his injury and, and experience risk. <clears throat> but if you're looking at upside, um, you have to think about him maybe overdrafting him slightly. If the ADP say he's at 87, which is sixth round, the fish list says, given that upside, you should maybe put him in the fourth round pool. So you're overdrafting him a little bit, but you're drafting on the promise of getting that profit. But if you waited to the sixth round, you probably wouldn't get him. So that's, that's kind of how the fish list works. On the pitching side, I saw Max Scherzer was somebody that might be uh, have an ADP that's out of line with what what Babs believes is his appropriate level. He's about at thirty, and Max Scherzer, you know, we know Max Scherzer. He his underlying skill basically in the same skills grouping as Garrett Cole, same pitcher, but he's older. He's got some injury risk, um, so you have to include that in your assessment of him when you, when you're drafting, which is why he's going 30 and, and, and Cole is going seventh. But the fish list says, you know, they're both first round players. So you could, as long as you can include the risk factors in your risk budget for Max Scherzer, you could feel comfortable drafting him um, early. Well, when I was looking through the list uh, that uh, is downloadable from babsbaseball.com, 
a guy I really like that jumped out at me is Rowdy Tellez, the first baseman in Toronto. I mean, there's some playing time risk here, clearly, with the amount of people they've brought in. But he's in a very good group in Babs as a power and batting average guy, uh, some risk in the experience and injury sides. Uh, but I'm pretty sure, based on the changes that he's made, Ron, that he's going to get the asterisk that you apply to guys who are OBP benefits. And I'll be delighted if I can get him in that fish target 15th round, I can tell you that. Yeah, and you know, if you take a look at the skills grouping that he's in, you know, he's being drafted pretty close to players who are comparable skilled players like like Josh Bell and Randall Gritchick. But if you look at the top of that group, the players who are going way ahead of him, but still have uh, generally comparable skills, he's in the same group as is Nolan Arenado and Michael Conforto. So when you take a look at that upset on the high end, you think, okay, this is a guy who I might want to draft a little bit earlier, pay an extra buck for. And on the pitching side, Chris Sale is going in the 16th round by ADP, and he's a legitimate first-round pitcher if we assume that uh, the injury risk is behind him. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's going to miss some time this year. Um, and again, if you can fit him to your roster with, and here's a situation where it's a major injury risk that uh, you really, of, of a high-level player, who you need to fit into your risk budget, but if he's going in the 16th and you can get him in the 14th or 15th round, I think that's that's something you, you should do. Moving ahead, Ron, uh, you've started writing a book, yes. kind of a history of fantasy baseball, how the industry began, and looking at some of the people who became the very first experts who built the foundation of everything that we have today. How did you decide to take on this project and write a fantasy baseball memoir? Yeah, I've, I've got a whole bunch of, probably about a half dozen book projects, uh, on my list of things that I've been thinking about doing for a while. Um, and I've been thinking about writing this type of book for a long time, but never really had the opportunity to, to sit down and plot it out. Uh, well, uh, the pandemic handed me that opportunity last spring. Um, and I have to tell you, it has become a project that has taken me over is there's so much to write about so many stories to tell. Um, you know, going back into the 1980s when I first started uh, in this industry and, and, you know, my dealings with uh, you know, Alex Patton and John Benson and uh, Greg Ambrosius of Fantasy uh, Baseball Magazine, where, how that started. You know, I've, I knew about many of these origin stories, um, but the more research I did, uh, the, the more fascinating it became. You know, the things that people did before they got into this industry. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have really just started going through the interviewing process. I spent a lot of time doing research through uh, piles and piles of, of stuff that I had saved over the years, and it's it's turning into a pretty pretty big project. But it's it's really it's really been fun to write this. In the early publicity, you called the book, and I quote, "a scrapbook of artifacts from the 1980s and 90s, a marketing and editorial manual, a behind-the-scenes tell-all, and a romance novel, all told through the warped semi-autobiographical lens of the author." romance novel i thought i've been around the game and industry not as long as you but a long time i don't recall a lot of romance so what have i been missing all these years yeah patrick i'm i'm, I'm sorry you missed out on all that that's uh you know that 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 first in-person experts draft started at, at a hooters in st petersburg florida and kind of just took off from there <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, I remember Ron. You ran a you ran a three or four part series on labor versus tout wars a couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago now at baseballhq.com. It was great, and it was really, really funny. I remember that. I laughed like hell. And oddly enough, I actually wrote you an email to say how hard I'd laughed at it, and you replied that you had actually been really mad when you wrote that part. Please tell me that series is going in more or less untouched with all of its humor intact. Uh, untouched, no. Greatly expanded, yes. Um, yeah, the, the original piece kind of glossed over those first four years of labor, but there's so much that happened during those first four drafts. So uh, I have a full chapter de- devoted to the very first draft in 1994, which was uh, a seven-hour conference call auction that's, that ended at like two in the morning. Um, so that was crazy. Uh, you know, Bill James, you know, his 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 speakerphone clicking on anytime he wanted to place a bid and clicking off whenever he was done. <laughs> and, uh, um, just, you know, Keith Olbermann showing up and realizing that he was in the wrong draft and prepared for the wrong draft. So it was, uh, uh, so yeah, there's a whole chapter devoted to that. And then uh, the 1995 draft um, that I think I included in the chapter that covers the player strike. Um, and I have a full chapter on, on the very first in-person experts draft, which was uh, 1996 in labor. And that's actually where we did have uh, John Hunt had a, uh, a kind of a, an icebreaker type of uh, meeting with all the, uh, the, the labor participants at Hooters. Uh, so we did have this Hooters thing. And, um, you know, we all were uh, expecting that USA Today would be picking up the tab for this because uh, after all, we had to pay our own way to go down to Florida. and. When when Hunt kind of put his put his hand out for all of us to to pay him, that didn't go over very well. Um, so, <laughs> so so there was that, um, and there, there were a bunch of situations how the leagues were run over those first few years that that created uh, some animosity and anger among those of us who were playing, which is which was really the impetus for Tout War starting in 1998. So I go through that whole process, but you know also. I, you know, we've also often talked about Larry Labadini and his uh, drafting the nine dollar pitching staff. So, you know, I I go through the whole story of that draft and and exactly how he drafted the players. And you know, I was in that draft and what I was thinking when he was going through uh, all that. And I, I show his final roster and what that looked like. He, you know, he didn't he didn't actually only draft a nine dollar pitching staff. His last fourteen spots were one dollar players. So he drafted five hitters and nine pitchers with his last $14. So, um, so that was, uh, interesting. Yeah. I, I talk about my interactions with guys like Mike Gimbel, you know, obviously Steve Moyer, Laura Michaels, so people like that. Um, and, and then the whole origins of Tout Wars, which is also is its own chapter. Uh, but, uh, again, some of my favorite chapters to write, I'll tell you that. You've set up the structure of the book as a series of basically of disagreements, or that's how they've been titled in what you've uh, released so far. Rotisseries, Founding Fathers versus Fantasy, Alex Patton versus John Benson versus Ron Chandler. I know they say conflict is the essence of drama, but why? Uh, have you set it up that way? Is that your intent going through? Uh, and what, what was the thinking in that approach? Yeah, that, that was kind of what I lived through. I mean, it, it seemed that that's how the industry was created and evolved. It was these conflicts that that drove people to, to push, push things forward. You know, the, you know, the founding fathers, you know, trying to protect their invention and, and while all these companies were sidestepping them by labeling uh, rotisserie as fantasy, uh, 
uh, fantasy legitimately could have killed rotisserie. Thank God it didn't. But um, uh, so there's that conflict. You know, Alex Patton, um, he, had, he, for whatever reason, he had purchased one of my early editions of the Baseball Forecaster, and then, unbeknownst to me, criticized work in his books. So um, that created some interesting uh, interactions between us over over the next few years. But he criticized me alongside Bill James and John Benson. So in some ways, you could say that that the Alex put me on the map. So there, there's that type of conflict. And for those of uh, those folks who've known me for a very long time, they know that John Benson and I did not get along. Um, and um, quite often there were lawyers involved and you know, he kind of set a tone for the competitive environment in the industry. And I think that pushed, a, pushed many of us in directions that helped spur the growth of the industry. So uh, you know, things like that, I think, uh, is, is how, how the fantasy baseball industry uh, grew over the, certainly in the 1990s. Ron, if everything goes according to plan, when are you expecting that the book will be published and in what formats are you going through directly uh, to a publisher? Are you going direct to the market with uh, ebook, something like that? How are you doing it and when? Yeah, I'm not sure yet. I'm, I'm hoping to get this all done by 2022, so in about another year. I'm, right now, I'm about two-thirds through the first draft. I'm hoping to get that done uh, probably by early summer and then... Uh, start going through the whole rewrite process over the second half of the year. How is still a big question. I mean, I, I could still go the traditional publishing route. Uh, I might self-publish, uh, just release it. But I've, I've even actually been thinking of making it an online web series. Um, there, there are so many ways to distribute these days. I, I just don't know that I necessarily need to have a physical book on my shelf to for it to be a final product. But uh, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. That's one thing about the uh, internet revolution is that it has created a lot of pathways for people to publish, even if they can't get the interest of the big publishing houses or small publishing houses. And the costs can be greatly reduced if you're distributing online uh, through EPUB or, as you said, through a web series or something like that. So um, one good thing about it is you have options when it comes time to make those decisions. Right. You know, and unlike a lot of books like Fantasyland, um, which which deliberately try to appeal to a larger market. I think I think the target for for this book may be a little bit more narrow um, because first of all, uh, the greater percentage of fantasy players now play fantasy football and may not be able to relate directly to what I'm writing about. So that kind of narrows my market a little bit and perhaps makes it a little bit more difficult for me to consider more of a a mass market or mainstream publication method. But uh, well, again, we'll see. I haven't decided yet. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler, the founder of Baseball HQ and BabsBaseball.com. Successful author already, but an author in waiting with a new book project, hopefully coming out within the next couple of years. Uh, Ron, I always like to wrap up these discussions, as you know, with some boons and banes. I'd like to start with the boons, guys you think will provide top value in the coming season. And maybe you could pick guys using your fish method based on something you said at the Bab site about how winning margins are likely to be found in those late middle rounds nowadays rather than early on uh, we can find five six even ten round bargains that you've uh, identified in the method let's start in the american league with a boon hitter looking up and down the uh, the babs listing uh, one of the early guys who kind of jumps out is, is having upside value is uh, leotis Tavares on uh, on texas uh, there are only about a dozen players who babs rates as having extreme speed and half of them have significant strikes against them you know like 
really low batting averages or, or no power at all. Um, Tavares is one of the very few with some solid power skills, actually. So he's not without risk given his, his short major league track record, but the scarcity of stolen bases these days make him more of a target. So um, he's the ADPs put him in the 14th round and, and the fish list slots him into round 12. In the National League, who's a boon hitter for you? We are talking about Rowdy Tellez just a minute ago. Uh, Brian Reynolds is also in that same group. He's currently going in the 20th round. Um, so he also has the upside of guys like you know Nolan Arenado, but also guys like Glaber Torres and Carlos Correa. <clears throat> there, there are actually a lot of these 20 homer, 270 at batting average guys out there. It, it really just depends on what you're willing to pay for them. Um, I think the market is depressing Reynolds because of his 190, uh, 189 batting average last year, but seems to be forgetting that he batted 314 the year before. So, yeah, the fish list slots him into round 18. Uh, Mauricio Dubon of the Giants, also in the 20th round uh, by the ADPs. His moderate speed, moderate batting average. Um, that's what defines the group that Dubon is in, which he shares this group with um, with players like Tommy Edmond and Marcus Simeon. And on the high end, on the upside, Ozzie Albies. So um, it's an interesting group here. His his surrounding Giants teammates obviously are, are going to suppress his ranking, but um, uh, the fish list slots him into round 18. Over to the mound, an American League pitcher who could be a boon? This is a bit of a higher risk speculation, but Michael Kopech, um is uh, currently going in the 19th on the ADPs. But he's projected into the same skills group as pitchers like uh, Zach Gallen and Sonny Gray. Um, there are a ton of risk factors here, you know, health and experience primarily. Um, and we just don't know how many innings the White Sox are going to give him. They, they are saying that they're going to limit him, and he's just fighting for that last uh, rotation spot. Um, again, you know, as always with injuries, this could change in a heartbeat, and he could back into a ton of innings. But still, based on the potential of his skills alone, the fish list slots him into round 17. And in the National League, Ron, who's a boon pitcher for you? Okay, I'm going to go really deep with this one. Um, Brent Suter, who's uh, probably going to be spending most of his time in the middle of the Brewers' bullpen, um, he could back into some starts. Uh, so there's some upside there. But uh, – He's his skills. He's been converting them into really solid ERA and WHIP levels. Uh, small small amounts of innings. It, it really hasn't. He hasn't really pitched all that much because of injury. So a lot of risk factors. But if you take a look at those skills, they are in the same grouping as guys like Steven Strasburg, Carlos Carrasco, Kenta Maeda. So um, if he backs into a couple of starts, that might be interesting. He's currently going outside the top five hundred in the ADPs. So the fish list would probably slot him in whatever two rounds ahead of he would normally go in. It's so basically you're talking about a deep reserve pick in the National League there. Ron Chandler's Boons, Leotis Tavares of Texas, Brian Reynolds of Pittsburgh, along with uh, Ozzie Albies and Maurice Dubon, uh, Michael Kopech of Chicago, uh, the White Sox, and Brent Suter of Milwaukee. Let's move on to the Baines, Ron, players you think have a good chance based on fish of disappointing their fantasy managers. Let's start in the American League again. Who's a hitter who could be a Bane? These again are players who I don't want where they're going, but fish list identifies the rounds where I would be comfortable taking them if they drop that far. So the AL Bane hitter I have is Vlad Guerrero, who's currently going in the fourth round. 
there have been uh, several folks on my case about his power rating uh, with with Babs, which basically is a non-rating. It's uh, just not recognizing his power. And they keep reminding me about his weight loss and his amazing exit velocity. And, you know, I it's great, but uh, exit velocity has limited value when your launch angle is horrible and your ground ball rate is sky high. So, yeah, hit that ball into the ground as much as you want, Flanny. Um, I want to see him correct that before Babs buys into his allegedly amazing home run potential. So he's going in the fourth round, but the fish list says, okay, I'll take him if he drops to round six. How about in the National League a Bane hitter? Um, I, I hate to say this because he's on my XFL team, but uh, Trent Grisham uh, is also going in the fourth round. It's kind of an across-the-board type hitter. Does several things relatively well, but nothing all that outstanding. Um, in fact, the only thing that he is above average in, according to Babs, is speed, which puts him into a skills grouping with players like uh, Nick Senzel and Andrew Stevenson. Yes, it's a very odd group. Um, the fishlet says uh, if he drops to round six, grab him then. Over to the mound again. Who's an American League pitcher who could be a Bane? Zach Plesak. Um, he's in a skills group that has 17 other pitchers in it. He's um, he's being drafted second among those players. The only one ahead of him is Lance Lynn. Uh, but there are many great arms behind him, like like Jose Barrio, Zach Wheeler, Zach Greinke. Um, there's no need to reach here because there are comparable skills just a few rounds away. So um, the fish list says he may be going around four, but uh, – if he's still around in round six, you can take him there. And finally, in the National League, how would a Bain pitcher? Um, also in that same grouping is Max Freed. So um, same group as Plezak, same situation applies. Uh, the fish list slots him in round seven. He's currently going in the fifth. The fish list says if he drops to seven, um, you can grab him there. But really, you know, if, if you go for two top-end pitchers early in the draft, say pocket aces in rounds, you know, one and two or two and three or what have you, these guys here like Zach Plesak and Max Fried, you don't even need to consider them because you already have your foundation for your pitching categories. Ron Chandler's Baines, Vlad Guerrero of Toronto, Trent Grisham of San Diego, Zach Plesak of Cleveland, Max Fried of Atlanta. Ron, this has been terrific, as I suspected it would be. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with Ron Chandler and all you're doing. Sure. My current writing now is at babsbaseball.com. Um, I'll doing a bunch of articles also this spring for The Athletic. And uh, you can all, always find my whereabouts at uh, ronchandler.com. My Twitter is at ronchandler and uh, ronchandler.baseball on Facebook. So no trouble tracking you down is what you're saying. I hope the IRS isn't after you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Where is that guy? Uh, yeah, just just Google me, you'll find me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ron. Uh, boy, I, I was expecting this to be terrific and fun, and it was terrific and fun and very informative as always. The Babs Baseball site is something everybody should at least look at and see about the philosophy of it and the results of it. It's terrific. Uh, thanks very much for helping us out this week. Uh, it's been a pleasure. This is always a blast to do. Thanks, Patrick. Ron Chandler is the founder of Baseball HQ and BabsBaseball.com. Coming up, we have our second expert interview with Rob Silver. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Dan Marcus looks at all five teams in the National League West, including handedness issues in San Diego, the D-backs rotation, and more. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd looks at five American leaguers, including Lourdes Gurriel, Andrew Heaney, and three more. 
In the Market Pulse, Matt Cedarholm surveys the 2021 third base market. And those are just three articles among dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes. News updates in playing time today. Roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. Buyer's guides for hitters, starters and relievers. Fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse and injury analysis in the Big Hurt. We also have groundbreaking fantasy baseball research and tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers during the season. When you add it all up, it's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview. It's Rob Silver, a past overall champion of the NFBC and a longtime fantasy analyst in his own right. Rob Silver, welcome back. It's been too long. It's great to be back. It's uh, it's nice to have some normal things like talking baseball uh, with you again uh, in this year that has been anything but normal. It has been very abnormal. And speaking of which, I've heard a nasty rumor that you're scaling back your fantasy baseball participation in 2021. Can this vile calumny be true? Uh, you know, it's one of those things. It's it's like the guy who says on, on New Year's Eve, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to drink as much uh, this year. And then two weeks in, you said, I'm just going to have one drink on Thursdays. And, and a month in, you're, you're kind of drinking as much as you were before the Christmas holiday. Um, I was. And it's for a bunch of um, personal reasons. And nothing tragic, nothing uh, major, like relative to so many people. I am so lucky. Uh, a big part of my fantasy um, enjoyment is going to Las Vegas every year uh, for the NFBC live drafts. And it became very clear to me very early on in this offseason. That's not happening for me this year. I haven't been vaccinated. There's no chance that I'm going to be vaccinated uh, by March. And and as you know, as Canadians traveling to the United States for non-essential travel is prohibited right now. And there's a big quarantine when you come back uh, if you you deem the travel necessary. And as as important as I take uh, and serious as I take the NFBC, it's hard to call it necessary travel. So for a variety of reasons, Las Vegas is certainly off for me uh, for for this March, and they obviously offer online drafts. But like with everything going on uh, back in November, December, it was just: Do I really want to do this? Do I want to get gear up? Can I put in the time? And then, so I took a bit of time off, and I I just wasn't reading much. I wasn't listening to much the way that I normally consume basically everything that people put out there. And then I started, you know, the forecaster arrives in the mail and I start flipping through that. And then I start doing like just a little bit of projections. And and here we are, you know, mid-March, you know, just after Valentine's Day. And um, it appears that I'm drinking just as much as I did before Christmas to extend that analogy. Have you uh, historically been someone who does generate your own projections or do you rely on other ones or aggregations of other ones, something like that? Um 
I'm one of those weirdos who it's the answer is both. So I'm a mass consumer of all the projection systems. I enjoy them. I try to dive into them. Uh, I certainly have my own method of taking um, projections and turning them into fantasy dollars. But in terms of what I show up at drafts with, they're my own projections, they're my own rankings, they're my own valuations. So it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I think the, the, the uh, projection models serve an incredibly important uh, purpose. Um, but I think that uh, especially if you're competing in the NFBC or in, in kind of tougher leagues, if you're only reliant on them, you're going to miss certain things, um, especially around playing time. That's where I spend a lot of my time is uh, tweaking and seeing kind of sensitivities around various scenarios of playing time. And when I think about 2021, um, it's only exasperated like this. I'm sure we'll get into this. There's never, I've been playing this game for a quarter of a century now, which makes me feel ancient uh, when I say that out loud. Uh, there's never been a year like this. I even remember coming off of the, the 94 and 95 strike. Um, and this is nothing like that. The number of unknowns, the level of uncertainty going into this season uh, is, uh, is unprecedented. And that's, I don't think that's hyperbole uh, saying that. So I think you kind of have to roll up your sleeves and do even more of the work this year than other years. Have you seen any trends or something that surprised you about this coming fantasy baseball season based on the drafts that have been undertaken? Yes. If you accept what I started out by saying, or what I just said, which is there has never been a year with as much uncertainty as this season in terms of how pitchers are going to be used, in terms of pitcher injuries, in terms of how to weigh 2020 versus historic trends, whether to weigh 2020 at all uh, within a projection. Um, it's been shocking to me how much group think there is how similar almost everybody seems to be thinking. And that is... You need to get pitchers early, starting pitching uh, early. Uh, why? Because um, the top starting pitchers give you a massive advantage in drafts. The drop-off between that top kind of 30, 35, 40, wherever you think the cliff is, and everybody else is massive. And therefore, you cannot, in a straight draft, leave round four or round five without at least two starting pitchers, if not three starting pitchers. So there's been the rise in popularity of uh, pocket aces, as my friend Toby uh, calls it, and he's had great success uh, with it, uh, starting pitcher, pitcher. Um, it, but it's amazing to me how we've gotten to a place where if you're quote unquote pushing pitching, that means you're not taking your first starting pitcher till the third round. So what, what has really stood out to me is I would have thought that in a world of uncertainty, in a world where there is so much unknown, never mind they're changing the baseball, apparently, like add everything together. I would have thought there would have been wildly divergent strategies, people who would look at the landscape and come to all kinds of different conclusions. And I just haven't seen that. Like I haven't, I don't mean crazy strategies. I don't mean like the old Lambendini, like spend $9 on pitching. So, you know, in straight draft talk, don't take your first starting pitcher until the 17th round. I don't mean anything quite that extreme, but there's nobody I've seen who's been advocating wait till the 
seventh round to take your first starting pitcher. There's nobody who's advocating like you can win this year by punting speed. There's nothing that has been even a little bit outside the box. And if ever there's a year to try that kind of thing, I would have thought it would be this year. I've had the same reaction, and you put it really well by this idea of groupthink, where somehow or other this idea gets started, and then everybody starts reporting on it, and then all the reporting leads people to think that it's something that everybody's doing, and pretty soon it is something that everybody's doing. So do you really think that there's a way to, and I asked Ron Chandler this earlier, is there a way for somebody to really consider zagging while everybody's zigging towards this starting pitcher-focused early strategy? It's, it's, yes, I think it's always a good thing to zig when everybody's zagging um, to a point. So, um, you know, Ron has both written and talked a lot about the error bars, the uncertainty around projections. And he's, of course, right uh, in terms of that. I think you need to work through, is this viable? Especially if you're, like, if you're playing in a 10 or 12 team home league, um, which which I know as a percentage of listeners, as a percentage of players, is still the majority of people. The majority of people still play in a uh, relatively small, contained league. In that type of a format, the, the um, spectrum of viable strategies are massive. Um, when you start playing in... Um, in leagues like I mostly play in now, the NFBC with an overall competition, the range of potential outcomes is limited. It is much harder to win an overall if you're punting a category entirely. It, it has been done. People who say it's never been done are wrong. It has been done, but it's really tough. Just the math becomes very tough. Um, but that doesn't mean that you need to do what everybody else is doing. Um, for a long time, uh, if you had been on Baseball HQ and you'd been advocating you should be spending $35 plus on multiple starting pitchers and spending half your budget in it auction on starting pitchers, you would have been laughed off the site, right? Like pitchers are risky. Pitchers get hurt. This is, you know, just in terms of allocating resources, this is uh, nuts. And that, yet now that is basically the consensus. Like that is the mainstream position. Let me just, just to be clear, there are good reasons for it. Like if you look at the historic who has won uh, the overall of the NFBC, there are not people who push pitching down. Like there, 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 there is a reason why this consensus has developed, but it doesn't mean that it is necessarily the best ROI uh, approach going into uh, 2021, I would argue. Well, speaking of uh, ROI, you did sneak back and do a feature analysis article in RotoWire recently, and this has been getting a lot of publicity around the uh, Twitter and uh, the other commentary areas. Uh, you were discussing the stolen base potential of Kansas City's Al Adalberto Mondesi, always been a controversial fantasy proposition anyway, and you started by calling the discussion so far exhausting and exhausted. What did you mean by that? Uh, I, I, well, first off, it was just a bit of a hook at, a, at the beginning of an, an article. Uh, but second, uh, I think everybody knows uh, 
who Adalberto Mondesi is, and most people who would be reading something at, at like that kind of have a position on uh, Mondesi, which is um, if I'm drafting him, I'm not drafting him because I think he's Mike Trout and is going to be a great real-life baseball player. I'm drafting him because we all know that a healthy Adalberto Mondesi can easily steal 50, 60, 80 stolen bases in a season. He has enough power, and we've seen flashes of that power to also hit 20 uh, home runs. So he's not Gerard Dyson. He's not Billy Hamilton. And in this in this landscape, frankly, in any landscape, a player who can go 2080 has the potential to be the number one fantasy player uh, in 2021. And not I nor anybody else would argue that that is not within Mondesi's realistic range of outcomes. Conversely, everybody knows the, the the conventional counter to Mondesi. One, he hasn't stayed healthy. So his next fully healthy season will be his first fully healthy season. And second of all, batting average. Like when you're striking out 30% of the time as Mondesi has through his career, and there's no reason to think that's going to change, um, it is very hard, even with his speed, to be much more than a 250, maybe 260 hitter. And for your number one hitter or your number two hitter or your $30, $35 uh, hitter, it is tough to start off with a 250 batting average um, because you're going to be chasing batting average the rest of the draft, and it's tough to chase batting average. People talk about how there's late power. There is late power, and we're all going to draft late power, but a lot of it comes with 240 batting averages. So those are the two arguments, uh, pro and con Mondesi. I thought there were a couple of things missing beyond that, and that's why I wrote uh, the piece on Mondesi. Yeah, and the things that were missing were well thought out because you discussed some aspects that are, I think, just not sufficiently discussed. And the first one is his on-base percentage. And uh, on-base percentage is not a category in most leagues, but it's vitally important in a Mondesi analysis when you're thinking about his potential. What's your point there? Um, so I looked at every player since um, 1960, so kind of the modern age of uh, baseball, who have stolen uh, 50 or more uh, bases in a season. And while it's an incredible feat stealing uh, 50 bases, it's not that rare. Like 218 player seasons have had 50 or more stolen bases. There are some great players who have done it. There are some really bad hitters who just happen to be fast who have stolen 50 bases in a year. Only one of them had an OBP under 280. Two players had an OBP uh, under 290. And only seven out of 218 had an on-base percentage under 300. Mondesi's career OBP is 284. And you say, well, but he's getting better. Uh, his OBP in 2020 was 294. If you look at all those projection systems we talked about uh, earlier, they're all under 300. What does that mean? It means if you assume, and if you're drafting Mondesi, you do assume, because you wouldn't draft him otherwise, that he's going to steal 50 bases this year. In doing so, he's either making history or coming pretty darn close uh, to making history. Now, just because somebody has never, or something has never happened before, or rarely happens, doesn't mean it can't happen. But I always like in fantasy, if you're 
drafting somebody on the basis that they're going to do something historic, you're paying for something historic, you should stop and ask yourself, do I really think this guy is about to make history? So I'll give you a couple of examples of where I've gone through that thought process and it's worked really well uh, for me. Uh, a lot of people the last few seasons have projected um, rebound seasons for Joey Votto or Miguel Cabrera. You know, great players uh, who were, were coming off of really down seasons. I looked at every single first baseman their age and asked, have they ever done what Joey Votto does? You know, 100 runs, 25 homers, 100 RBIs, 300 batting average. And the answer is basically no. There's no first baseman who's age who did it. So I was like, well, do I think Joey Votto is going to do it? I'm not sure. So I sort of faded the Joey Votto comeback uh, last season. Conversely, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander before his injury, uh, when you look at player pitchers their age who were having those kinds of seasons, there were some examples. You know, you had your Randy Johnsons, you had your Roger Clemens, who late 30s still had elite seasons. And I said to myself, you know, maybe Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer can do that. But it was a conversation. So if you're thinking of drafting Mondesi, you just need to understand he's doing something, you're paying for him to do something that's almost never happened before. Come to your own conclusion. If you think Alberto Mondesi has a unique enough skill set that he will make history, not get on base, but still steal 50 bases, then it's your fantasy team. Make that draft. But you need to appreciate that's what you're doing. You also pointed out that there are three parts to a stolen base, and they all interconnect and they're all important. First, how many opportunities he has, which for Mondesi is quite low because he doesn't walk and he has that sub-300 on base percentage, so he doesn't have that many times on base where he could steal a base. Then there's how many times the player takes the opportunity when it's presented, which for Mondesi is very high, sometimes over 50%, but always way above the league average. And of course, there's how often he succeeds. Again, Mondesi very high. I think he's over 80% for his career. Why can't those very high go rates and very high success rates work for Mondesi enough to offset the fact that he's just not on base as often as you'd like? So it can and again, I, I accept that it is possible he will still have 50 to 60 bases uh, this season. But you compare him to uh, Trey Turner. You know, Trey Turner is a pretty darn good base dealer, too. Um, Trey Turner gets basically twice as many opportunities per game to steal a base as Mondesi. Uh, Mondesi, for his career, has about 1.1 stolen base opportunities uh, per game. Trey Turner's at two uh, per, per game. Ricky Henderson, the all-time best base uh, stealer, was over two stolen bases, uh, stolen base opportunities uh, per game. It is possible Mondesi at what, 25 years old, could improve. Like, he could start walking more. He could start uh, getting more opportunities. It's also possible with the recent trade for Andrew Benatendi, uh, with Carlos Santana coming to Kansas City, that instead of batting second, he bats eighth, ninth in that Royals lineup and gets even further stolen base, uh, fewer stolen bases uh, opportunities uh, as he had, had. But my point is... Right now, he's not getting a lot of stolen base opportunities uh, because of his poor on-base percentage because he bats second for a whole bunch of reasons. But as you mentioned, he runs well over 50% of the time. And somebody who's a Mondesi defender, somebody who likes Mondesi could say, well, why would that slow down? Like, that's who he is. That's what he's going to do. When you look historically through 
great base stealers or, or even just pretty good uh, uh, base stealers. Very few of them, almost none of them. I could, I only found one guy who's been able to maintain a 50% plus stolen base rate. How often they take off when they have that stolen base uh, opportunity through their career. That was Vince Coleman, who actually, if you are pro Mondesi from just a base running perspective, Mondesi has more power than Vince Coleman uh, did. Uh, that's your best case scenario. Vince Coleman, for almost all his career, stayed over uh, 50%. Um, Different time, like the most extreme uh, stolen base context in terms of those go-go Cardinals of the uh, the 80s, early 90s. Uh, but that that's possible. But Trey Turner steals bases like 30% of the time. Ricky Henderson stole bases 30% of the time. Billy Hamilton at the beginning of his career was up towards 50, but it came down quickly. And when you take Mondesi's opportunity rate combined with his how often he runs um, – if he runs as often as Trey Turner did uh, does, so I'm not taking like Cecil Fielder's stolen base rate. If he runs as often as Trey Turner does, he suddenly steals 30 bases, not 50 bases. If he runs as, as often as Jose Ramirez uh, does, he suddenly steals 20 bases. That's not a projection. Like I would take the over on those numbers, but I hear a lot of people saying, look, Rob, I get all the problems with Mondesi, but a healthy Mondesi can't help but steal 50 bases. And when you actually dig into the the math, um, it's actually quite plausible. Uh, that he could steal, quote unquote, only 30 or 40 bases. Now, a 30 base season, 30 stolen base season uh, in 2021 could come very close to leading the league, but it's certainly not what you're paying for. You're expecting a lot more than that. So that's the downside. And as I conclude the article, don't take any of that as me saying, therefore, do not draft Adberto Mondesi. Um, it's just think it through before you, you're convinced that this is the right answer on how you're going to tackle speed this year. And one of the appeals of a high pick on a guy like Mondesi is the huge foundation in stolen bases, as you mentioned, that lets you really de-emphasize them for the rest of the draft. You don't have to chase them when you've got that, that big foundation. But even if we assume Mondesi could maintain 50 stolen base performance level, isn't there an eggs in one basket risk taking Mondesi or any other similar player? Because if he gets hurt, not only are you just losing the $35 you invested or the second round pick you invested, but you're also basically tanking the category in a way that you said earlier, in a, especially in an overall kind of situation. If you, if you, if you punt stolen bases, you can't win the overall, or it's extremely difficult to win the overall. And if Mondesi gets hurt, you're essentially punting the category. There's no doubt. Any, any, any pick you make in the first two or three rounds, losing them, them getting hurt, them struggling, any of those things hurts. You, 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 you know, the, the old cliche, you don't win the draft in the first round, but you can lose it. I don't know that that's entirely true, um, but, but there's truth to it. Um, the two most irreplaceable players, I would argue, in the, that are going in the first three rounds, the first one is Mondesi. If Mondesi gets hurt, you have, by definition, put not 100% of your speed on him or, or you're not 
going to do very well in speed because as good as he is, if you literally have no other stolen bases, uh, that's not enough. But there, you're not going to find on the free agent wire um, that kind of speed. The other one is JT Realmuto. Like if you, I, I get the argument for taking early catchers. If he stays healthy and is as productive as he has been, uh, it's great. But you can't, never mind, get 50% of his production back uh, on the free agent wire. You can't get 10% of his production. Whoever you pick up to replace him if he gets hurt is a negative to, uh, to you. Whereas if you take Freddie Freeman and he gets hurt for a month, the first baseman you pick up is not going to be good. He's not going to be Freddie Freeman, but you can pick, you can find 50 cents on the dollar of Freddie Freeman to at least bridge a little bit. So it stings, but you can make do with Mondesi with Real Muto. Uh, as you say, if, 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 if it doesn't work out, then um, it's going to be a long season. You're listening to baseball HQ radio, Patrick Davitt. With Rob Silver, former national champion of the NFBC, overall champion, and a longtime fantasy baseball analyst. Uh, Rob, you've popped up now and again on Twitter discussing some fantasy baseball, and I noticed just the other day you posted a poll asking uh, your followers to vote on Josh Donaldson versus Justin Turner at third base. Uh, how did the poll go, and how would you have voted? Well, I mean, I was curious after Turner uh, signed because Donaldson and Turner are going very close together. They're both around pick uh, 200. Um, I may have uh, put my finger on the scale because I followed up and, and talked about Donaldson a little bit more. But it was about two-thirds uh, Donaldson, one-third uh, Justin Turner. Um, but lots of smart uh Folks responded, uh, including you know my friend Matt Modica and, and others, uh, defending Turner. I would pick Donaldson. Um, they're they're similar players in the sense that they're both uh, older players. They both have injury histories. Um, Josh Donaldson, as worried as I am about the calf injury and kind of accumulation of old man injuries is a year removed from a top 60 season. His 2019, in a lot of ways, was a remarkable uh, success for him. Um, not just, I mean, for two big reasons, and there are two interrelated reasons. I thought coming after off of 2018, when he had the back problems and uh, calf injuries and his bat speed to me is somebody who watched him a lot when he was on the Blue Jays, just looked slow. And the fact that Josh Donaldson in a pre-DH, non-DH uh, universe um, quite literally played every single day uh, for Atlanta uh, that season and was almost as production, uh, productive as he had been at any point of his career uh, was remarkable. Uh, to me, like it's it's an incredible uh, achievement, getting almost 660 plate appearances, 37 homers, 96 uh, runs, 94 RBIs. Um, he's only a year removed from that, and while there's real injury risk uh, with him, and and obviously on the Twins with Nelson, Nelson Cruz, not a lot of DH opportunities. That um, that production level is still in his bat. The problem with Justin Turner, I think Justin Turner is a tremendous real baseball player for the Los Angeles Dodgers because the Los Angeles Dodgers don't need Justin Turner to do a thing more than exactly what he has done for them, uh, which is get 500 plate appearances, be ready for the playoffs, and they can rest him whenever he needs a day off. Uh, and if he needs to go on the IL for a week, two weeks, 
four weeks. They have eight different guys who can fill in at third base. Um, it's amazing to me that, because uh, I don't think of Justin Turner this way, but as a uh, 36-year-old, he's hit 600 plate appearances exactly once. In fact, he's only hit 550 plate appearances exactly once. The likelihood at his age that he's suddenly going to get healthy and put it all together, and lots of us do this, right? You take Justin Turner's numbers, you take his uh, projections, and you prorate it over 625 plate appearances, and you're like, my God, this is this is incredible. Like this, this is uh, a, like a, a mini Freddie Freeman available with that batting average and that production at pick 200. The likelihood of that suddenly happening uh, at his age, when he really has never done that, he had the 2016 season and otherwise not, I don't think the Dodgers want him to have that uh, kind of a season in terms of number of games played. So I just think that the, the ceiling on Turner is quite low in daily transaction leagues where you can get him in and out of your lineup uh, if he's in the lineup or not, different story. Like if I can make sure that I only have Justin Turner in my lineup uh, on days that he is playing, then he's great because there's no reason to think he won't be hugely productive per at bat. But I know that Josh Donaldson could have a 600 plus plate appearance, 30 plus home runs, 100 RBI uh, season. There's no scenario that Justin Turner has that season. So I, I would, I'd rather the upside of Donaldson there. A little earlier, Rob, you referred to the rumor, I think it is at this stage, that Major League Baseball is going to change the composition of the baseball to make the balls less resilient and therefore less likely to generate high exit velocity. So there's going to be a uh, decline in power and probably a decline in base hits just because the balls aren't traveling as briskly as they have done in the last few years. And as a result, you said on Twitter, all the hitting and pitching projections are going to be wrong. First of all, how much do we know about the report and the rumor as far as whether or not Major League Baseball is, in fact, altering the baseball for 2021? It, it sounded like a pretty well-reported piece. I think, I think it was in The Athletic. So, like, they, they, um, they seemed, at least on my reading of it, and, uh, uh, you know, we all read uh, media with a certain amount of skepticism in, in all areas uh, these days, but it sounds very well-reported. Here's the reason why I'm a little bit skeptical, though, is Major League Baseball lies, as far as Major League Baseball goes, nothing has changed with the baseball effort. Nothing has ever been manipulated with the baseball. And we know that's not true. We know the baseball they were playing uh, with in 2018, 2019, 2020 was different. We know that we know that it changed in the postseason suddenly. So what I need to uh, wrap my head around if I'm going to start turning this into an actionable um item from a fantasy perspective is that suddenly they're telling the truth and that suddenly they're going to stick with it um, for the whole season. Let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say the ball is deadened, less bouncy uh, in in April 1st, opening day. It's clearly, and, and they, the, the good thing is smarter people than I am can quickly tell whether the ball has been changed. They have, they have ways to see if the ball has been changed very quickly. So let's say by April 3rd, April 4th, we know this is a different baseball. And let's say hypothetically that um, offense home runs go well down, measurably down. We are playing in a pre-2018 uh, 
type of uh, run environment and home run environment. And let's say by May 1st, Major League Baseball sees, my gosh, TV ratings are way down. People just aren't watching these 2-1-3-1 games where people are bunting more and hitting running. We thought this was going to be better, um, but ratings are down, uh, and they quickly have a conference call and come to the conclusion, we need more offense, guys. Is there anything we can do to do it? And suddenly they go back to the old ball. Like, is that a crazy hypothetical? I don't think so. Are they going to tell us? No. If they do tell us, you've already drafted your team. What are you going to do about it? So it's so tough to know what to do with this piece of news uh, for me. Uh, Other smarter people may have figured this all out, but it's like there are already so many moving parts going into 2021 for the reasons we've discussed earlier. And you just throw this uh, in the mix. It's really, really tough to figure out. So what do you do about it? I think the question of what you're going to do about it has to be at the margins. You've got to figure that your Giancarlo Stantons and what have you are going to be unaffected, but there's going to be an effect that's kind of distributed. And I've heard the argument that, yeah, if the ball's a little less resilient and it travels a little less far, it doesn't affect everybody. I mean, it does affect everybody pretty much the same, except maybe at at the margins, the guys who hit it 460 feet routinely are now going to hit it 450. It's a home run either way. It's your, uh, I remember the year of the, of the first reports about the baseball having been altered. Justin Smoke went from being like a 15 home run guy to a 30 home run guy because he he really benefited from those extra 10 feet because he was a, a warning track guy who all of a sudden is getting them scraping over the fence. If the reverse is true, uh, how does that matter? Um, so the guys I'm more interested in than the hitters are the subset of pitchers who have um, a, a high strikeout rate so the, the, these are not junk ball pitchers who are just like throwing batting practice and we're getting killed. Uh, those those guys I still have no uh, interest uh, in. Um, but high strikeout rate and high fly ball rate and high home run per fly ball rate. So I'll give you a couple of examples, the most extreme ex- examples, though they both have other blemishes beyond this, but they, they kind of give you an illustration, are Matthew Boyd and Robbie Ray. So they, they miss bats. That's not their problem. Again, they do have other problems. You're going to raise their other problems. Um, but they're like last, last year or the last two years, Robbie Ray, home run per fly ball uh, is, is, is worst or, or first, uh, depending on your perspective. Uh, has the high, he has a, a, almost a 20% home run per fly ball rate. Um, Matthew Boyd has almost a 19% home run per fly ball rate. Both of them are also fly ball pitchers. They're near the league leaders uh, in fly ball rates. I assume the fly ball rates aren't going to change, but it's interesting to run their numbers and assume a league average home run to fly ball rate closer to a league average. Obviously, if if there was a dead ball, what a league average looks like might change. But play with the numbers and and make an assumption. Now, does that suddenly make Matthew Boyd a tenth uh, round pick the way he was at this time at this point last year? I don't think so because I think he has other issues. But like where he's going in drafts. Uh, that could make him a little bit more interesting. Like that could open up a path for him 
to be a uh, a nice rebound pitcher in Matthew Boyd uh, if 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 suddenly his home run to fly ball rate uh, numbers uh, can normalize a little bit with a little bit of help from his friends at Major League Baseball. Yeah, it would be fairly straightforward to figure out what his ERA and WHIP would look like if the uh, home run mm-hmm. per fly ball rate were ten percent rather than twenty, and of course it would improve a lot. There'd be a, a surge in his Huge. strand rate. It would be very yes, it would be very important, and uh, and it it would be material to making the choices that you're going to make about whether to roster that. Those kinds of pitchers in the mid to late rounds certainly take on a, a new level of interest. But as you said before, it's very difficult to commit to those kinds of things when we really can't trust Major League Baseball, A, to be straightforward with us on what's going on, and B, not to reverse course if something uh, uh, something uh, happens. And that's the reason why I'd like I'd like making a bet on somebody. And I, I, I pick Matthew Boyd almost intentionally because me and some friends, Matthew Boyd became something of a joke for us uh, last because he was just so bad last year in the in the short season. Uh, I don't actually know that this will help Matthew Boyd. Uh, could, um, but I like making a bet where he's going in drafts because if I'm wrong, especially in in drafts with a relatively deep free agent pool, I I know that. I'm wrong three starts into the season. Hopefully there are three starts where he's on my bench at the beginning of the season, and I'm going to be waving guys to anyways. It's really different. I would not make big changes to my projections on the basis of the ball for guys going, let's say, in the top 10 rounds. Players I'm, sp- players I'm spending $20 or, or more on in auctions um, because of how unknown it is. Whereas if it's a $1 end game, end game guy and I'm picking between three different players, if it's my 25th round pick, that's, that's where kind of using a few hypotheticals and, and gaming this through uh, I think is is not a terrible thing to do. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Silver, former overall champion at the NFBC and a longtime fantasy analyst. And Rob, up here in Canada, we used to have a game show for high school kids called Reach for the Top. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, you, you're a lot younger than I am. But uh, at the end of every show, they would have a round they called short snappers. It would basically just a, a potpourri of one question after another, no linking themes or anything like that. So let's do some a reach for the top short snappers here uh, about player signings. First of all, you were on Sportsnet Radio, I think, in Toronto just uh, last week or so to talk about Trevor Bauer signing in L.A. What was your take on that, and how does it affect his fantasy value to you? Um, I... I think he is going to be the most overdrafted player in fantasy uh, this year. He's going to be going in the first round. Uh, It's not that I hate Trevor Bauer. It's that I have no idea who I'm drafting with Trevor Bauer. Uh, He was so good last year. He was so good two years ago, and he's been so mediocre at other points uh, in his career. And if I am making the logical leap to draft a pitcher in the first round, I want certainty or as close to certainty uh, as I possibly uh, can have. And you cannot tell me with any kind of certainty who Trevor Bauer actually is as a pitcher. So if you if you had a crystal ball and you could guarantee me I'm getting 2020 Trevor Bauer in 2021, then you should be using your 
crystal ball for more valuable things and giving me fantasy advice. But uh, uh, unlike a DeGrom or a Cole, who could they get hurt? Of course they could get hurt. But in terms of true talent, I know exactly who they are. Trevor Bauer is a total mystery to me. With LA, they don't care. They have a lot of money and it's just it's just TV ratings for them. So if they're wrong about Trevor Bauer, if he's mediocre again, then suddenly, you know, Gonsolin uh, pitches more often or they suck it up and they still win the NL West by 18 games this year. Different on my fantasy team. Trevor Bauer is an interesting guy because I think the influence not only of his most recent season, so there's an obvious recency bias in what was a short season and anything can happen over a decreased sample size, as we know, but he's also controversial. He's got a very active Twitter account. He's pretty blunt and vocal about his teammates and other guys in baseball and stuff like that. And I think the notoriety probably helps him be a little more interesting of a target when you're in a draft. And all of those things strike me as being the wrong reasons to draft a guy. And and for that reason, I agree with you. I look at his ERA over the last four or five years, there's more fours than there is twos. A lot more fours than there is twos. And in his whip, there's a lot more 1.3s than there is a sub one. So um, I understand pitchers improve as they get older. And what do you make of his uh, avowed intention to seek a situation where he could start every four days rather than every five in the, in LA where they do exactly the opposite? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's for, uh, first off, I try to separate out kind of any, um, uh, personal or political uh, views on Trevor Bauer, the person from Trevor Bauer, the fantasy uh, player. It's hard. We all have biases. We all bring those biases to bear, whether we want to or not. I try uh, to to keep that uh, away. Uh, It would be super weird if LA gives him his wish to throw every fourth day. If we knew, if he had signed somewhere where it was guaranteed he was going to throw every fourth day and therefore had uh, the potential to make 40 starts uh, this year instead of 32, 33 uh, as the maximum number of starts, then even if you accept that he's closer to that four pitcher than the pitcher, you know, the two ERA pitcher that we've seen in his good seasons, his value would have shot up. But in LA, uh, there is absolutely no reason to think he will ever start on short rest for the next two seasons while he's there. James Paxton had been rumored uh, in connection with the Toronto Blue Jays, of course, has instead of all things gone back to Seattle on a one-year deal. What do you make of his value as a Mariner? Uh, I love James Paxton so much. Uh, I want him to be successful. There are very few pitchers I enjoy watching, like just as a fan of baseball, more than James Paxton. Um, he, the, the, the Mariners are one of the teams, and most people listening to this know this already, that have come out and said they are using a six-man rotation. James Paxton is in a six-man rotation. That is not going to change. Um so in some ways, that's a double-edged sword. You can say with good reason, well, but we knew James Paxton wasn't pitching 200 innings uh, this year. So him starting every sixth day, um, yeah, that's what you're buying with James Paxton. And that's true. And the extra rest could keep him healthier, keep him fresher, uh, make him more dominant. Um, the converse is in deeper leagues. So I'm not talking AL only leagues. I'm talking 12, 15 team uh, leagues. So leagues where um, 
where there are more fungible players, more free agents. The problem with the six-man rotation is you will basically never have two start weeks or very rarely two start weeks. Um, so on the one hand, could James Paxton put up a 3-7 ERA, pretty good strikeouts, pretty good whip, in 150 innings, of course he could. A healthy James Paxton should be doing that in Seattle. But from a week-to-week perspective, never having those two start weeks um, really does decrease the value of all the starting pitchers on teams that are going to be doing it unless, unless every team is doing it. If every team is doing some version of six-man even if they don't say it out of the gate, but it just turns into that over the course of the season, then the advantage of the two start weeks um, disappears. And suddenly that's the rule of the game uh, for everybody. Um, but if if you assume only, let's say, a third of the teams, you know, eight to 10 teams are using a six-man rotation, it's a bit of a double-edged whammy uh, to use another game show uh, term from uh, from 150 years ago. Um, never getting those two start weeks. Um, so um, love James Paxson. Hope he bounces back. But the 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 ceiling is capped because of the Seattle decision. Must have been something he was good with. Uh, maybe he thinks, and his managers and the people that are close to him, maybe they think that pitching every sixth day or, or whatever a six-man rotation works out to be, but a few less starts might preserve his ability to put up a decent season, and it's a one-year deal, so maybe he goes back into free agency next year with a nice you know, 320 ERA to, to hang about as a selling point. Mm-hmm. And and look, uh, he has not had a big uh, payday uh, yet. So I'm not somebody who believes that athletes try harder uh, just because they're a free agent. Um, I think they all try really hard. And I think James Paxton is trying to stay healthy really badly. He really wants to have a healthy season. He really wants to do well every time he goes out there. But he needs to show he can he can take the ball every time his team wants to give it. Uh, to him so he doesn't have a repeat of this winter next winter and a healthy James Paxson can be a thing of beauty like his stuff when it's on is tremendous and we all know that we've all seen James Paxson when he's on at his best and it it, it is wonderful and uh, I, I wish it for him as a fan of baseball and as a fan of James Paxson. So do I. I just wish he'd have signed in Toronto. Uh, I think it would have been much more interesting here in Canada than it would have been in Seattle, as close as it is to Vancouver. Uh, Mark Melanson signed in San Diego, a bullpen that already had Drew Pomerantz as an established closer from last year, and Emilio Pagan, who's an established closer from Tampa in the past. What kind of value does Mark Melanson have in what looks like a maybe a fairly unconventional setup as far as pitching goes in San Diego? Um, Drew Pomerantz has been drafted all winter as if he's the closer. I don't think he's going to be the closer, capital the capital C. Doesn't mean Drew Pomerantz won't still be a very good pitcher. He's one of those kind of middle relievers who could end up being a really valuable pitcher if he gets, you know, eight to ten saves, a bunch of wins, and really helps your ratios. But I think if you are looking to draft one guy to get all the saves, uh, San Diego is not going to be the place you want to be looking. I think that they're going to mix and match. I think they uh, there wasn't much more at a certain point that they could do to improve that rotation. So I think Melanson gives them some depth to the bullpen. I think all three of those guys are going to get saves. 
And therefore, they're all worthwhile unless you think I need 30 saves from one of them. It's possible that Melanson becomes the guy, but I think they want all three of them to pitch. Depends on matchups and depends who's hot. So I think they'll take turns over a long season getting those uh, saves, which is the new reality with a lot of teams, and it's frustrating as heck for a lot of us in fantasy. And of course, Pomeranz is the left-hander and the other two guys are right-handers. That's going to play into Mm -hmm. it, especially if they want to be quotes modern and and playing matchups and being analytical about the application of the various pitchers that they have in that bullpen i think you're right i think it's very likely that however many saves there are to distribute in san diego they're going to be distributed a lot more equally than benefits anybody who wants them for saves purposes in a fantasy setting Uh, matt harvey signed in baltimore any hope uh there's hope if you run a nightclub in uh Baltimore that things could get better with Matt Harvey uh, in town. Uh, I, it's, I, I don't know that I would have wanted Matt Harvey six years ago playing on this Baltimore team. Uh, it's, um, it's sad how Matt Harvey's career has unfolded, but no, I don't, I think we're well past the point where uh, you draft Matt Harvey in any format, especially on Baltimore. As Drupal Cabrera signed in Arizona, as Drupal Cabrera has been a pretty useful player over the years. Looks like he slots right into second base, probably hits sixth in the order in Arizona. How do you like as Drupal Cabrera as a desert dweller? Um, he is the guy who uh, I think when he's like he's I guess he's thirty five this year, so when he's like forty two, will still be signing with somebody late, getting just enough playing time to be a worthwhile. to $10 player. So he's one of those guys who will have multi-position eligibility depending on your rules. And this year, obviously, every league's a little bit different in terms of how they're allocating uh, position eligibility. But but in a lot of leagues, he already has first and third base eligibility. So he gets second base eligibility, presumably very early on in the season. And nobody leaves their draft. Nobody since like 1997 has left their draft saying to themselves, yes, I got Astrobol Cabrera, this is this team is stacked. Nobody thinks that. And then and yet at the end of the year, you look at your 28th pick, and it's like, my gosh, I used Astrobol Cabrera most weeks. He got me a little bit of power, a little bit of everything, not so much speed anymore. And he cost nothing and filled in everywhere. And he's one of those glue guys that with COVID, with everything going on, have an Astral Cabrera on your bench, you could do a lot worse. As other people are drafting like the 20-year-old prospect that they hope gets called up uh, the fourth week of the season, draft Astral and he'll just fill in places. He'll just get you playing time. He'll get you stats. And that's what this is about. From 2015 to 2019, runs scored 66, 65, 66, 68, 69. And a lot of what he's done has been pretty much like that, except a 91 RBI outlier in 2019 playing for a couple of teams. Yeah, he's just one of those guys who produces and nobody even remembers that they had him on their team. You know, where, where you're reading the paper, oh, it's Dribble Carrera had, uh, you know, a home run and three RBIs last night. I wish he was on my team. And then you go, wait a minute, he is on my team. Got him in the 24th round. Yeah, exactly right. Jay Bruce signed a non-roster invitation with the Yankees. Seems uh, unlikely that he's going to be able to fit in there. They're pretty loaded, but any chance? 
There is a chance. Uh, I mean, it's it's the Yankees. Stranger things have happened. A lot of it depends. It's weird to say this on whether they br- bring Brett Gardner back. So Brett Gardner is still a free agent. Brett Gardner is good, like could lead the Yankees outfield in plate appearances for another five years. Also, no, he'll never go into the season with the job. But somehow at the end of the season, you look and Brett Gardner's gotten you 500 plate appearances. If they don't sign, um, if they don't sign Brett Gardner, then um, Jay Bruce, even though very different player, different skill set, could slide into that role. First off, he's a left-handed uh, batter in a lineup that, other than switch hitter Aaron Hicks, is entirely right-handed. So that plays to his advantage. And how does he get into the lineup? Well, as of today, you're, you're like, well, I don't see how this possibly could happen. All he needs is an Aaron Judge injury, a Giancarlo Stanton injury, an Aaron Hicks injury, a Clint Fraser uh, injury. If one of those four things happen and he's the, the fourth outfielder, then suddenly Jay Bruce is playing every day in a stadium that could not be better uh, for him. Uh, so it's, 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 it's crazier things have happened than Jay Bruce having a, a productive season in New York. Would I bet a dollar on it right now? Well, if I was in an AL only league, I sure uh would, but it's certainly worth watching because it's not that crazy to see it happen. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Rob Silver, former NFBC champion and fantasy analyst. Uh, Rob, I'd like to wrap these discussions up with boons and banes, players you think will help their fantasy teams or hurt them. Uh, let's start with some boons, guys you think will provide top value in the coming season in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a boon? It's the most boring uh, answer. It may have been the same answer I gave last year, but it's just as true today as it was last year. It's Nelson Cruz. Uh, We are all collectively, even though we know better, making the David Ortiz mistake with Nelson Cruz. He has finished as a top 35 player, not hitter, player in 2019 and 2020. And yet his ADP, even since he has signed back with the twins is down almost 20 points from where it was uh, last season. Give me Nelson Cruz in the sixth round. And is there a potential chance? This is the year he falls off the cliff. Of course, there's a chance, but the profit potential there that he doesn't, that he ages just like big poppy, uh, like fine wine. And I'm getting that DH discount. I will make that bet all day, every single day. It's funny you should mention David Ortiz because uh, I wrote a few blurbs for Peter Kreutzer's uh, draft fantasy guide, and I likened Nelson Cruz to David Ortiz as well. In the National League, who's a boon hitter that you like? Somebody who I was down on uh, until he got traded this offseason, but I really like him uh, and and where he's going, and that's Josh Bell, uh, who got traded to Washington. And Josh Bell had a crazy half season where he had like 180 RBIs in a two-month period. I may be rounding up just slightly uh, there. And then kind of was pretty good. Um, I, I'm I'm not going to cite his StatCast uh, data. I'm going to uh, cite his new ballpark. Washington is a sneaky good ballpark uh, for uh, him and for uh, hitters generally. And I think that uh, give me a player who's going to hit after uh, Juan Soto and Trey Turner and I like uh, and, and that I can get in the tenth round uh, right now. I think that everything is there for Josh Bell to have a uh, a wonderful little season for himself. 
Over to the mound, uh, who's a pitcher in the American League that you think could be a boon? I'm good. I'm trying with with the pitchers to go a little bit off the map. I, I don't want to uh, say like I like this second round pitcher uh, that everybody uh, likes. I'd rather it's more interesting to give some names that are going later. So obviously the the risk that I'm very wrong is higher because they're going very late. Uh, I like in the American League Cal Quantrill on Cleveland, who may or may not have a starting uh, job. It's very possible Cal Quantrill is in the bullpen to start the year. He's uh, looking uh, uh, inside at the rotation. Um, I think that uh, and I'm, I'm not just going to cite authority because Cleveland has had success with starting pitchers uh, making changes uh, in the past and therefore they will do it again. Uh, I think I I would al- here's, here is a hot take. I would almost rather if I knew he had a job in the rotation. So if Cleveland came out and said Cal Quantrill is one of our starting pitchers this year, I'd almost rather him than, than please act straight up cost aside and Cal Quantrill obviously uh, whether he has a job or not is going uh, way cheaper uh, than Plezak. but I think that they made some changes with him after he came over from San Diego I don't understand uh, why San Diego gave up on him the way that they did um, but I think that a full winter in the Cleveland pitching factory um, could bring some really nice gains for Cal Quantrill this year and in the National League who's a boon pitcher for you um, this one is going to go either really well or really, really badly. I am going with the ghost of Carlos Martinez from the Cardinals. And this is a great example of how you need to avoid, and it's so hard, um, recency bias with respect to 2020 because he was if not the worst pitcher in baseball certainly one of the worst pitchers and there is nothing redeeming that you can find in carlos martinez's uh profile from last season and i am throwing it in the garbage uh can it is so easy to forget how dominant a starting pitcher Carlos Martinez has been for his entire career as a starting pitcher. He has a 3-5-4 ERA as a starting pitcher in his uh, career. And when you go year by year by year uh, through his starting pitching um, um, resume, it's just good, 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 horrendous last year. He was healthy during winter ball. And his ADP is somewhere, I think, in the 500s right now. So I will take a chance uh, that there is a rebound uh, coming for uh, Carlos Martinez. And if I'm wrong, I will just move on. Rob Silver's Boons, Nelson Cruz of Minnesota, Josh Bell of Washington, Cal Quantrill of Cleveland, Carlos Martinez of St. Louis. Let's move on to the Baines, Rob. These are players you think have a good chance of disappointing their fantasy managers this season. Again, let's start in the American League with a hitter who could be a Bane. I'm going to cheat and use somebody we already talked about, Adberto Mondesi. I uh, I will go down with this uh, ship. I think he. I don't think he will be a total disaster, but I think he will uh, will disappoint a lot of people this year. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a bane? I don't understand this guy's ADP, uh, and it hasn't changed much recently. I think it may change, but uh, uh, it's it's basically Adalberto Mondesi's role model uh, in baseball, and that's Jonathan VR. Like he doesn't have a job in New York, uh, and even when he does have a job, um, players with uh, 
fantasy is different from reality. We do play a different game. Jonathan VR has had some tremendous fantasy seasons, but there's a reason why the Mets signed him for basically nothing to be a bench player. And yet he's still being drafted in the 11th round. I get speed is tough to find. It's really tough to find if you're taking pitching up uh, front while all the, the, the good hitters who happen to be fast are being drafted but you're tricking yourself if you think you're getting anything when you draft Jonathan VR. I, the hot take for me with VR is, I don't know that he even ends up making the Mets. Like, I don't know. I'd take the under on, call it 150 plate appearances this year because I think they just have so many better options than Jonathan VR. Back to the mound we go. American League pitcher who could be a bane. Uh, Framber Valdez uh, on Houston. Um, This is a great example to me of allowing recency bias to affect decisions. So a year ago at this time, Framber Valdez was on nobody's radar and he was was making the team, but he was not a guy you were drafting. Um, Last year, you look at it and there's no doubt the numbers in his, you know, 11, 12 starts were good. And I, I get the case everybody makes on why they're drafting Framber where they're drafting him. But, and, and, and people who have drafted him are yelling right now, uh, Rob, he improved. He got better. He's a different pitcher. You didn't watch him uh, pitch if you think he's the same guy. Here's the problem with that argument. So he had one start. Just four innings in July, he got blown up, you know, six ERA in July. Then in August of the short season, he was fabulous. Like he had a 185 ERA, was missing bats, 38 strikeouts. It, 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 was, it was a thing of glory. But then in September or October, like it was back to a five ERA. So the argument you need to, to make to me is he was bad. I granted Rob coming into last season and he got great. Then he got bad, and then in the playoffs, because if you watch the playoffs, you saw him, he was tremendous again. Um, Maybe he is. Maybe that is all true. Maybe he learned things, forgot the things, and then uh, learned them again in the postseason. But uh, I think it's a small sample size, which is different from saying he's terrible, but in the sixth round... Um, this is a guy who should be, if, if he was going in the 12th round, I'd be interested in him in the sixth round. Uh, I'll pass. And finally, a pitcher in the National League who could be a Bane. He is on so many hot breakout uh, lists, and I've loved this guy, it feels like, since I was uh, a teenager. But I don't understand the love for Drew Smiley, uh, who signed with Atlanta uh, this offseason. Like, he's thrown 140 pitch uh, innings in the last four seasons. Uh, his 26 innings last year were very good. There's no arguing he threw 26 very good innings. People are smarter than making a case for a player based on 26 innings. There is no other season ever where people have made arguments, this is now a new pitcher, based on 26 innings. And yet that's what I keep hearing with Drew Smiley. So I don't know that he can stay healthy. And even if he stays healthy, I think he is a good, solid, decent pitcher but he's not those 26 innings worth of pitchers and i you know he's not going super early but if you think that's what you're buying if you think that's what atlanta bought 
I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And there are lots of pitchers going around there that I have way more confidence will actually give you a fantasy production than, uh, than Drew Smiley. And I'm more than willing to be wrong. Like I'm, if, if, if Drew Smiley took a next level and it was all visible in those 26 innings, uh, then, then muzzle tove to you. You've just uh, drafted a quality Drew Smiley. Rob Silvers, Baines, Adalberto Mondesi of Kansas City, Jonathan Villar of the Mets, Fran Valdez of Houston, Drew Smiley of Atlanta. Rob, this has been terrific. Remind us where listeners can keep up with Rob Silver. Uh, on Twitter at Rob Silver, and thank you. This has been a ton of fun in a otherwise not awesome year, but I hope everybody is uh, is well, and I hope you're well. Rob Silver is a past overall champion of the NFBC and a longtime fantasy baseball analyst. <laughs> And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number five of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guests for this Two Tout Tuesday edition, Ron Chandler, the founder of Baseball HQ and BabsBaseball.com, and Rob Silver, a past overall champion of the NFBC and a longtime fantasy baseball analyst. Ron is one of the true pioneers and a consistently innovative theorist in our game. Little wonder he's in the Fantasy Baseball Hall of Fame. Rob is a top-rate fantasy baseball analyst and great fun to talk with. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with another Friday News and Notes edition featuring National League and American League player news with Nick and Ray and our fantasy baseball commentaries with Rob Gordon and Alex Becky. It's another Friday News and Notes edition in three short days on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.